Here at Doxedo Hatfield, we are a family on mission. Make sure to get connected by joining us at one of our Sunday services. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Great, so you can open up your Bible with me this morning, whether it's in your hand or on your device. Um, and you can open it to the New Testament, that's the second half of your Bible. The fourth book is called John. And we are, same as last week, in the book of John, chapter 2. So John Chapter 2, if you're new with us, uh, just to bring you up to speed, we are still in a series that we are calling Jesus Uncensored, and we're looking at these encounters that Jesus had all throughout his life and ministry, life-changing encounters with many, many different people. He encountered prominence and professional, um, you know, incompetent people, and he he also encountered people that were desperate and they were destitute and that really struggled. But in all these encounters, people left Changed. There was never a person who met Jesus, had an encounter with him, and left unchanged. And so we're looking at some of these encounters and trusting that as we do that, that you would either for the very first time encounter Christ through his spirit, through his word, through his people, or maybe afresh this morning, what I need and what you need is a fresh encounter with this Jesus. And so remember every week, if you haven't received one of these cards, we're handing one out every single week just to remind you, maybe this message or this sermon or this Sunday or one conversation you had today is super crucial. And all throughout the series, if this is one of them, keep it close by. On your fridge, um, like I said, duct tape to your friend's forehead or whatever the case is, asking the question about you encountering God, but also other people in our city encountering Jesus through you. So on that note, this morning, let me tell you about the very first wedding that I had to officiate many, many moons ago, and you would think it went very well. I don't know why you would think that, um, but let me cut to the chase. It was a disaster. <laughs> We've got Volna and Jason in just a couple of days. They're going to have a wedding, so this is not setting them up at all, um, but this was a friend of mine, and I had known this friend since grade one, so we are, you know, we like furniture in one another's homes, and he excitedly asked me, you know, as a young pastor, will you please marry us? And I said, yes, it's going to be my first time doing this, and not once, Not twice, but three times during the message, I butchered his bride-to-be's name. And the first time, everyone kind of chuckled, and I thought, well, I think I'm doing well, because the people are kind of lighthearted, you know, everyone's, it's funny, you know, people are laughing, it's probably like the good vibes I'm sending out. The second time, her mom just kind of leaned into me and said, that's not how you pronounce it. And the third time, after she had already corrected me, I was sinking, And, you know, it was so bad afterward at the reception, I sat there with my wife, you know, trying to make small talk with all these people, and I felt so sick to my stomach just from I had ruined this moment, you know, it's a laughing stock in this guy's wedding. I felt so sick that she actually had to take me back home at one stage and return to spend the rest of the night alone. Now, in this encounter for today, Jesus has sort of a similar moment at a wedding, And it's a much bigger blunder. You see, weddings in the ancient Near East was very different from what we understand them. We see weddings and the ceremony, it's a very individualistic thing. It's all about the couple and the wedding and the, the marriage. It's about their joy. But in the ancient Near East, it was a communal thing. Weddings were about bringing families together. And so that meant that the whole town, most of the time, was at a wedding like this. So if you were, you know, putting together your list, your guest list, you don't have to worry about that because everyone's invited. Everyone will be there. And it also meant very different from ours, which is maybe like a half a day affair or so. These would last up to a week. So you would have a week of wedding feast together. Can you imagine that? Like by day two, your feet are hurting. Day three, day four, day five. It's a big deal. 
And now what happens, this is not just a small thing, but the unthinkable takes place at this wedding. Because Jesus and his mom, we read, and some of his disciples, his close friends, they're invited to one of these massive wedding feasts. And then the unthinkable happens. You know, at our wedding, Shay and I, um, we had actually paid to have lemonade put out when we went to take our photos. So, you know, as we're doing our photo thing, the people can relax and they can drink some lemonade. But the caterer forgot to put out the lemonade. And so, you know, afterwards I would hear, you know, we away and it's very hot. It was January, early January in the free state. It was one of the hottest days of my life. And I just heard that the people stood there very kind of dry mouthed and negative, not having anything to drink, trying to make small talk. So that was a bit of a, it was a bit of a mess up. But this was very different. This was not like that at all. Because day two or so into this week long wedding feast that the whole town is invited to, it says the wine runs out. <laughs> Without the wine, there is no good times anymore, friends. Do you know that? It's one of those weddings. Everyone, the moment we see straight, it's not that fun anymore. So the, the wine has run out, and it's a big deal. This is a social disaster. And it's with that background that there's this difficult moment between Jesus and his own mom. So read with me, John 2, verse 1. It says, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana of Galilee, and Jesus' mother was there, and Jesus and his disciples were invited to the wedding as well. And when the wine ran out, Jesus' mother told him, they don't have any wine. And now he says this, what does this have to do with you and me, woman? <laughs> we're going to get there. Yeah, that's pretty strong. Jesus asked, my hour has not yet come. Do whatever he tells you, his mother told the servants. Now six stone water jars had been set there for Jewish purification. Each contained 20 or 30 gallons, that's about 70 to 100 liters each. Fill the jars with water, Jesus told them. So they filled them to the brim. And then he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the head waiter. And they did. And when the head waiter tasted the water, after it had become wine, he did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew. He called the groom and he told him, everyone sets out the fine wine first. And after the people are drunk, you know, then the inferior. But he says, but you, you've kept the fine wine until now. Jesus did this, the first of his signs in Cana of Galilee. He revealed his glory and his disciples believed him. Interesting passage, isn't it? Now, I want to tell you right from the get-go that the key to this whole story, this whole moment, this encounter that Jesus has with these people at this wedding is found in that very last verse, verse 11, where it says that this first sign that Jesus did revealed something of his glory and the people believed him. Because you see, Jesus didn't have to reveal something of his, his power or you know, his, his authority in this moment, but he chose to do so still. And where he did it and how he did it has massive significance. Why? Think about this for a moment. Think about the fact that this is the very first miraculous thing that Jesus does. This is like the entrance of his public ministry onto the scene. It's the first recorded sign, John says. He doesn't just say a miracle. Jesus did many miracles, but he says this was the first sign. A sign is something that points to something else. It's something that actually draws your attention to a greater truth 
And this, Jesus says, I choose to make my first big public statement. Now think with me about other big public moments like this. First encounters. I think of something that rocked the USA, 2016. Donald Trump, he announces his presidential campaign. How does he do it? Where does he do it? Of course, at Trump Towers. Where else? His name is on the building. And he comes down, you know, this golden escalator and, you know, rocking the free world by Neil Young is playing in the background. And he launches his big slogan, make America great again. Or I think of in 2007, when Steve Jobs released and brought into the world for public knowledge the first time, the first iPhone. This is such a classic moment. Go and watch this online where he teases out months of rumors and he says, we have three new revolutionary products. We have a widescreen touch-enabled iPod, for those who remember those things. So secondly, we have a revolutionary phone. And thirdly, we have an internet-enabled communication device that will change the world. And the people are boiling over with excitement. Then he drops it on them. He says, I'm not actually speaking about three different things. I'm speaking about one thing, and we call it iPhone. And the people lose it. Or think about Lance Armstrong. After years of denying any wrongdoing, he chooses this moment on the Oprah Winfrey talk show, no less, And he says on the 17th of January that, yes, I did use performance-enhancing drugs all throughout all seven of my Tour de France titles. Massive. Or I think of, for us as a country, the 1995 Rugby World Cup. And I think of how Nelson Mandela, our president, knew that this was one of a couple of moments that, in a sense, would reintroduce South Africa into the public conversation. Do you see that all of these moments, these public introductions, are every detail of them. It's chosen so carefully. We have to say the right thing in the right way because people will take notes and the details are important. Now contrast that with Jesus who says, I'm going to do my first big sign, my first big moment. And he does it here. There's no one to, you know, no one's dying like last week with Lazarus that he can resurrect. No one is, you know, is sick that he can make better. There's no people to feed. Uh, There's no demon to drive out. Nothing. It's a wedding and there's no wine. The, The people are not enjoying themselves anymore. And Jesus says, this is where I will announce my public ministry. Why does he do that? Why? And what I want you to see today, we're going to look at three things. But I want you to understand that two weeks ago, it's almost like a little trilogy we're finishing off today in the bigger series. Two weeks ago in our encounter with uh, you know, the, the insider and the outcast with Nicodemus and this woman at the well, we saw something of what is wrong in the, in the world, in the human heart. And last week, we saw something of the what or the who then specifically, who can set it right. It's Christ, the God-man who can set it right. But today we're going to see in this encounter how he comes to set the world right. Right. And so three things about how I think Jesus announces setting the world right. And the first thing is this, is that he is bringing great joy. Jesus is bringing great joy. Now watch with me in your Bibles. Verse 9, we introduce to one of the main players in this week-long feast. And he's called the head waiter. 
Um, now, we know there's something like an MC maybe at weddings. You know, that guy usually, he's, he either bombs spectacularly with very subpar jokes or awkward moments, or he really carries the whole moment together. But this was much more important. The head waiter, the master of the banquet, had to make sure that the people and the setting and the atmosphere, he was in control of all of that. So if the people are having a good time, you know, the roof is kind of bouncing for a week, that was because he was doing his job. And it says under his watch, the wine runs out. And now what happens when Jesus then steps in and he solves the issue? Do you see what Jesus is saying? Do you see what he is, in a sense, announcing as he steps into the center? He is saying, I am the true master of the banquet. I am the Lord of the feast. I am the emcee of eternal joy. And that is what I come to do. And maybe you say, wait, I thought Jesus came to, you know, give up his life and suffer and be humbled and it's dark and it's difficult. Yes, that's true. But it's almost like in this moment, Jesus saying, I'm putting even those horrible realities of what I've come to do on this earth, like we spoke about last week, I'm coming to put that into context of something much greater. (laughs) Yes, he says, there will be suffering. Yes, there will be sacrifice. Yes, there will be difficulties first for me and then for all my followers ever after. But he says all of that is simply a means to an end. It's a means to an end. You know what that end is? It's joy. It's not just joy. It's great joy. He comes to bring a feast. He comes to wrap up all things in the mind of Jesus in this moment. The centerpiece of what he's saying as the Lord of of the feast, as the great Lord of the banquet. He is saying that I come to wrap up history in this way, that it would be filled with joy. When heaven meets earth once again, when death is destroyed, when tears are wiped away, when all are healed, he says that the resurrection at the end, I come to bring great joy. Now, if that sounds strange to you, if it doesn't sound serious enough, You should actually get used to the fact that the Bible often speaks about God and the way that God works with us in very emotional terms. If if you notice that, I'm like a very unemotional person. So sometimes the Bible shocks me in my very kind of straight-faced way of doing things with how sappy it gets and soppy it gets. I mean, listen to David. He's this warrior king, and he writes in Psalm 34 verse 8, he speaks to the Israelites in the Old Testament. He says to them, taste and see that the Lord is good. Isn't that strange? That is the strangest language. Speaking about God, you know, the transcendent creator of the universe, I want you to taste and see that he's good. Now you might ask, okay, but don't they know that he's good? Don't they know it? And it's almost like David is saying, yes, the Israelites know it. But his challenge to them and to us this morning is, but have you deeply experienced it? Have you tasted in the deepest recess of your soul that God is good? Because that's what he's challenging them with. You know, I think many people think, you know, Christians are these straight-faced, boring, you know, always furrow-browed, frowning kind of people. We're going through life with all these strict rules and these kinds of things. The unfortunate reality of that is the Bible goes in the opposite direction. The Bible is filled with this message of the great joy of the kingdom invading the seriousness and the brokenness of the world. It's like the trumpets of heaven are always at the front of the procession saying Jesus' kingdom will be known with 
with its, its just sense and its DNA of laughter and joy and of good times. It's like a wedding feast that, you know, on day two, the, the wine is done, but the master of the banquet says, no, 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 friends, we are far from done. Great Isoki music, you know, make, make it very loud because we are going to continue the party. In fact, listen to this. I'm, I think Jesus might have had this in mind. Do you know what the Bible, the language it uses when it speaks about many times? This is one example of the end moment when Jesus wraps all of this up. When God, we don't know how and when that will happen. But listen to some of the, the language that Isaiah uses for it. You would think this is the serious moment. But Isaiah 25 or 6 says this. On this mountain, speaking of this moment, the Lord of the banquet moment. He says, the Lord of armies will prepare for all the peoples a feast of choice meat. He says, a, a feast with aged wine. He will destroy death forever. The Lord God will wipe away the tears from every face and remove his people's disgrace from the whole earth. Now, the other evening, we, had, uh, we went out for some supper with Tash and Nick. And I have to say, I'm not a very cultured person, so I know nothing about wine. <laughs> and I just think of this moment where God says, you know, that moment that, you know, I saw Nick doing his thing well, you know, just stirring the wine a bit, you know, taking it in, making some cultured statements about it. Jesus says, when you see that, when you've got friends over and you're laughing and you're having a good time, that is the DNA of my kingdom. And the brokenness of this world and the sin of this world and the, the hopelessness of this world will not overcome the joy of my kingdom. You know, there's this beautiful moment, probably one of my favorite movies of all time, is uh, the Lord of the Rings series. And uh, I think it's one of those where you have to struggle between the book and the movies a bit. But a detail that's left out in the movies that I think it's so profound is right at the end, spoiler alert, by the way, but it's a really old book, so it's shame on you if you haven't seen it or watched it or read it. But, you know, at the end, when Frodo and Samwise's good friend, you know, when they finally, you know, chuck this, this ring into Mount Doom, and it's just, it's just chaos. It looks like Armageddon, and Samwise thinks they're going to die. But then, miraculously, they saved. And Gandalf comes with these, you know, these, these eagles, and it's just this beautiful moment. And Samwise, he almost wakes up from this, this terror-filled state that he's in. And he looks at Gandalf and he says, I thought I was going to die. And I thought we were all going to die. But now I see that you're alive and, and I'm alive. And then he says this. This is so beautiful. He says, he asks him, is everything sad going to come untrue? Gandalf, I'm asking you. It, this was, we, were, we were right on the brink of death and destruction. And now it looks like... The tide has turned, and my question is, is everything that's sad going to come untrue? You know what Jesus does when he starts his ministry? The first thing, he doesn't have iPhones or make America great again slogans. He has the profound statement to make at a wedding when he says, I come to this earth to come and announce the fact that everything that is sad and broken and hurt and death-filled will be made untrue. And as the Lord of the feast, as the MC of eternity himself, I come to make sure of that myself. All things that are sad will be made untrue. Jesus brings great, great joy. But secondly, I don't think that's the only thing that he's saying to us in this moment. It's not the only way. The only how of how he is going to come and fix what's broken in our city, in our world, in our hearts. The second thing is he's meeting a great need. He's not just bringing a great joy. He's meeting a great need. So look with me. Another detail that we see here is when he rescues this young couple from their little social blunder, 
how does he do it? How specifically does he do it? It says that he takes the water that was kept for what? For purification, Jewish purification. That's a very specific detail. And he changes that into wine. Now, in the Old Testament, if you read through it, you will know that there are a whole bunch of rites and rituals and things that were given for a specific group of people in a specific time for their ceremonies and their ways of engaging with God in the Old Covenant. And some of them had to do with before you would be able to make sacrifices for your sins, for your brokenness, for for your uh, rebellion against God, you would have to purify yourself. So before the blood of some animal would flow, and all of this was just pictures. I mean, we don't understand this, friends. A couple of thousand years ago, culture is not just different from us, it's alien from us. The barbarism of the people, the tribalism of the people. God has to work with people where he finds them. So would it have been nice to get like an iPad with all the truth in it, you know, 6,000 years ago when he met David, for instance? I don't know, that would have been nice, but that's not where we met the people. And so he has to work into their barbaric culture with their sacrificial systems. And he says, let me show you, let me point you towards something. Because what this was doing, a couple of hundreds of years of sacrificing and purification, it was pointing the people to a greater need at the bottom of their hearts. doesn't matter how many times we've purified ourselves. doesn't matter how many times we've sacrificed and blood is spilt. That hole in my heart is not getting healed. That deficit that I live with is not getting joined together. And it's as if Jesus comes and he says, I'm going to take this water that was kept for this ritual that constantly reminds people that there is a holy and perfect God and broken and sinful people and there's this divide between them. And I am going to come and do what none of these purification and sacrifice rituals would ever be able to fully do. I will come and purify the hearts of my people. I will come and not just change your heart, but transform your heart. I'm not just going to come and give you laws and examples to follow. I'm coming with such a love offering that your heart would melt and be transformed. He says, I'm going to come and do the one thing that you've never been able to fully do yourself. You see, I know probably the one thing that no one wants to speak of On a Sunday morning, when you go to church or when you meet a Christian, it's the topic of sin. Isn't that right? We almost get very uncomfortable when someone mentions that sin or brokenness. That thing that's at the depth of the human heart that we so struggle to wrestle with. And it's almost like in this passage, we see with this purification, that dual need of there is a deep sense of shame in the heart of mankind. In the heart of every man, woman, and child, there's this deep sense of shame and of guilt. And none of these rituals are able to deal with that. You know, I don't know if you've watched the original Rocky when Sylvester Stallone was not like, you know, 103 or however old he is now. That guy is like, yeah, he's, I think he's just short of a vampire. But the original Rocky... It's such a beautiful moment before he's about to fight Apollo Creed. This, you know, no one's ever even gone 15 rounds with this guy yet. He's a monster. And Rocky, this guy, you know, he's about to go up to, and his girlfriend, Adrian, they're lying on the bed before this big moment. And she says to him, you know, you don't have to win. You know, it's not not that big of a thing. 
And you know what he says to her? He says to her, it's not even about winning. I don't even care if he splits my head open tomorrow, but this is something that I know. I have to go 15 rounds with this man. I have to do that no one else has ever done. Because if at the end of 15 rounds I'm left standing, he says this, I will know that I'm not just another bum from the neighborhood. I will know that I'm not just another bum. Do you see that in the heart of this man, there was such a deep sense of unworthiness, of brokenness. And if I can just do this, I will prove to myself that I'm something, I'm someone, I'm of worth. Can I submit to some of us this morning, especially if you're a professional, the definition of a professional in the vocational field means that your personal life doesn't really matter as long as you can do your job well. Can I submit to us that for some of us, the drive to do well and impress and excel and climb the corporate ladder and and have someone by your side that people turn around to watch and drive in a car that impresses people and live in a house that astounds, some of the drive for that comes down to the same thing. If I can just show myself that I'm not just another bum. There's such a deep sense of unhealed shame in the human heart. And we stuff sex and we stuff drugs and we stuff relationships and we stuff finances and corporate ladders and friends and esteem and we stuff all of that in there and it doesn't work. If you want biblical language in Genesis 3, it's this this archetypal moment that gets repeated over and over and over again all throughout human history where Adam and Eve, they take of this fruit, they rebel against God and it says the first thing they experience is what? Nakedness. I'm ashamed of who I am. And they try and cover themselves up very poorly with these fig leaves. You know what those fig leaves are in our lives often? It's that drive. God, I will show maybe even people that are not even around in your life anymore. I will show them that I'm someone. I will show them that I'm of worth. I will show them. I will show myself. I'm not just another bum. There's such deep shame. But there's guilt as well. Friends, I was so touched by Manalisi this morning, just sharing of what our country is going through. Can I challenge us? It's going to be so simple. We're speaking about men at the moment and some of the toxicity that exists in the heart of certain men. And we're speaking about the difficulties of xenophobia and how we're interacting with each other. Our country is bleeding by its seams at the moment. And here's my worry. We spoke about it last week that we can sit. If you're a Christian here this morning, I don't make that assumption of all of us. But if you're a Christian, it's so easy to sit and say, those people out there, Doing these bad things. God help us. Instead of realizing, I've got exactly the same heart as that person. The potential for evil in that person's heart and mine. Oh, it's so close. In fact, it's much closer than we would like to think. You know, there's this graphic... (laughs) story of a man called Adolf Eichmann, and you can go and read of him yourself. He was one of the architects of the Third Reich's just brutalizing of six million Jewish men and women and children. Some of the most horrific things done to women and to young kids. How debased we can become as human beings and treat each other as lower than animals. And this man He escaped after the Second World War to South America, trying to flee, and eventually he was captured and taken back to Israel and put onto trial, and he was executed for his war crimes. 
But it's amazing. There was this pivotal moment in his trial where they had to find people, obviously, to testify against it. They had witnessed some of the horrific things that they had put in place. And so they find this man. His name is Yehiel Dinur. And when he came in to testify the morning of this trial, this Yehiel walks into you know, the courtroom and he sees this Adolf Eichmann sitting there behind this glass enclosure. And it's recorded that the moment that he locked eyes with him, Yehiel just broke down. He's in tears. He, he, he comes apart completely emotionally. And there's chaos, pandemonium in the courtroom. And the, you know, the judge is trying to get everyone back into order. But it's just this difficult moment. And so a season after that, an interview with this Yehiel, this interviewer asks him, what happened? Were you just you know, taken back in horror when you saw him? Did it bring back memories from what you saw and what you experienced? And he said, no, it's not that at all. And he shocked millions of people by saying this. He said when he saw him sitting behind that glass box, he suddenly realized that this man is not some kind of demon. This man is not some kind of monster in degrees separated from me. He said, I was afraid about myself. I saw that I am capable of doing this exactly like he did. You see, something of the shared humanity suddenly dawned on him. And he realized, given the right circumstances, given the right culture, given the right movements and nudges, I can exactly end up where this man ended up. Friends, what's hurting our country at the moment is the fact that our church is not on heart level and hands level and head level saying we need to rise up. And not speak out against, but engage humbly. Because guess what? That same guilt that is causing people to do horrific things at the moment, it resides in my heart as well as in yours. Jesus, he said, you know, in John chapter 2, there's a moment where just after this, he's healed so many people and says a whole bunch believe in him. They want to follow him. But it says in the New Living Translation about them, it says no one needed to tell him, Jesus, about human nature. Because it says he doesn't trust them, for he knew what was in each person's heart. Jesus knew that what he would have to come and do on this earth is not just leave us a good example or some good teaching, but he would have to come. And like these purification water jugs put out, he would come and he would have to heal, restore, renew, redeem the guilt and the shame that resides in every heart of every man, woman, and child. He comes to address a great need. And finally, I think the last thing that we see this morning in this passage, it's not just that Jesus brings this great joy, and it's not just that he is coming to meet this great need, but Jesus, in the process, is paying a great price. He is paying a great price. Because in this moment, we get to the heart of this passage. This is the beating heart of this whole movement. You see, Jesus, you know, with his mother, they confronted with the fact that the, the wine is done and the party has come to an end. And now his mother turns to him. And I don't think she has the full understanding, obviously, of who Jesus is. But I think some of the prophecies and some of the moments probably leading up to, you know, the stittier ministry or the stittier stretch before his ministry, she knew something about her son that was different. And so she turns to him and she says, listen, do something about this. 
And then Jesus has the gall to say, what does this have to do with you and me, woman? Now, every commentator on the Bible will agree that this is uncharacteristically harsh of Jesus. I mean, all throughout the Gospels, he does not lose his temper easily. He's a very even-keeled guy. He meets heavy opposition with a lot of grace and truth. And to his own mother, this, this is out of line. So what is going on here? And we see the answer just after it. He says what? My hour has not yet come. If you read through the book of John, you'll find this phrase, the hour, coming all over the show. And every single time it's referring to the same thing. It's referring to the death of Jesus Christ on behalf of mankind. It's this brutal moment that Jesus knows is coming. And it's so strange. For some reason, you're thinking, but what is the wine? Why does that set Jesus off suddenly? And he's so connected to the reality of what he's going to do. Guys, think about this. Think about the, the water that he uses. Think about the connection that he's making. What is the one thing that's necessary for the party to truly go on? And Jesus sits there. Have you ever seen single people at a wedding? I was one of those for many years. Have you seen what happens somewhere during the evening? They sit there and they almost like, they're just looking past everyone. They have this out-of-body moment because they're not looking at the bride or the bridegroom. They're not looking and you know, enjoying the music or eating the food. They are imagining their own wedding, right? They are they taken you know, to this beautiful place and they see themselves in it. They are looking past everyone, looking to their wedding, into the future. And it's almost like Jesus in this moment, speaking quite harshly, it's almost like he's looking past his mother, he's looking past his disciples, he's looking past this wedding celebration, this feast, he's looking past all these realities, and he's looking to his own future, to his own wedding, as it were, and there's this intense moment of joy that he's bringing, but the reality of the horror that it will entail. Oh, mom, I so wish to heal the hearts of these people. I so wish to redeem this group. I so wish to bring my life. But do you know what it will take for me to do that? Jesus is brought in horror toward his own wedding. Why wedding? Do you know that all throughout the Bible, especially the Old Testament, God will not just use language of him being the king and the creator, but often that he is a bridegroom to his people. That's a strange picture once again, isn't it? I hope your pastor's always making the joke about, you know, men have to get used to being the bride of Christ. <laughs> but even with that said, that's such a strange picture. God's saying, I want you to understand just a dimension of my relationship with you. I am the bridegroom and you are like my bride. It says in Mark 2 verse 19, at one stage, Jesus' disciples, they are getting pasted by people by saying they're not fasting. Why are they not fasting? Um, and Jesus says this, he says, the wedding guests cannot fast while the groom is with them, can they? You see what Jesus is saying? He identifies, even though he knows it's only the God of Israel that sees himself as the bridegroom of the people. Jesus says, I am that bridegroom. That's an astonishing thing. He says, I am that bridegroom. And listen to how something of a picture of this in Revelation 19, just giving us some, some visceral language. It says, let us be glad and rejoice and give him glory because the marriage of the lamb has come. 
and his bride has prepared herself. Blessed are those that are invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. How is Jesus going to set things right? He is going to go and lose the relationship that we could not mend so that we could be grafted back. And he is going to live a life of destitution and suffering. He is going to live a life of being a misfit and uncharacterized. He is going to be the one that will be rejected so that God would turn his face toward us. He says, as the bridegroom for you to fall into my arms as my people at the end of all time, for me to melt your heart, for me to win you over, for me to redeem you, I, as the bridegroom, will have to sacrifice myself. These jugs always spoke about substitution. I'm going to purify myself before we substitute something for my sin. And Jesus comes and he says, I am that substitution. Let me end just with this thought. Guys, if we don't understand the depth of the, the shame and the guilt that can, that can live in this heart, then when Jesus promises, even through Ezekiel, that I'm going to come and give you a new heart, it doesn't ring true. So I think of, you know, the classic book, Tale of Two Cities. We meet these two men, Sydney and Charles, and they both love the same woman, which is always, that's trouble. But she loves Charles, right? And she marries him. And then later on in the story at the end, Charles is arrested and he's going to be executed. So he has a child and he has a wife and he's about to die. But Sydney, his former rival, the man that's taken the woman that I love, they look so similar that he decides they break into his cell. He knocks out this former you know, enemy of his. He puts on his clothes and he allows his friends to rescue him out. And he now steps into his place awaiting execution the next morning. And you meet in the story the seamstress who's also about to be executed and she thinks she's speaking to Charles and she reaches out to him just for a bit of hope because she's desperate and she realizes it's not him and she says, are you going to die for this man? And he shushes her and he says, I'm going to die for his wife and his children as well. And she begs him, can I just hold your hand? Because she is so moved by the self-sacrifice of this man. It's not even for her. Friends, Jesus comes and he invites us and he says, can you imagine what your life will be like if you live in the reality, if you live from the truth, if you live from the fact that Jesus says, I have given myself for you. Because the degree to which that melts your heart and it grabs you and it changes you and it transforms you is the degree to which you will have joy forevermore. So will you stand with me? We're going to take a moment and just respond. We're going to sing a last song. And as the worship team comes up, will you just read this with me? And Dostoevsky's classic, I've not read through this whole book, it's very long. But this portion is so great. And it's these two brothers, the brothers Karamazov. And at one stage, they're speaking about death and about, you know, the suffering of the world and just the harsh realities. And I just love this. And can we end off with this together? Can this be the tone of our life and our worship and our church and our community? He says this, this one brother. He says, I believe like a child, speaking of Jesus and the end of all times, that suffering will be healed and made up for. 
that in the world's finale, at the moment of eternal harmony, something so precious will come to pass that it will be sufficient for all hearts, for the comforting of all resentments, for the atonement of all crimes of humanity, for all the blood that they've shed, that it will make it not only possible to forgive, but to justify that it's all happened. He says, such a great joy will come at the end that every tear will be wiped away. And dare I say this morning that a church that lives from that joy today is the kind of church that will be able to heal the pain that our country is experiencing at the moment. Do you have that joy? Jesus says, I'm the Lord of the feast. I come to give you great joy. Let's pray. Jesus, this morning, I just pray, God, that, that each of us would be so captured by who you are and that your sacrifice, God, in your life and your love, it would melt our hearts this morning. And God, may we be a church that lives in the truth, God, even if so many people this morning, the realities of their life does not speak of joy, it speaks of heartache and it speaks of difficulty. May we be taken in by the joy of the Lord of the feast. In Jesus' name we pray.